Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to our second part of a two-part series on how native digitals, people 35 and under, are changing everything and represent a fundamental change in the category of human beings. And if by chance you have not heard episode 250, which is the one behind this one in your feed, we would recommend go back and take a listen because it helps to frame the critical importance of this episode. Because today we welcome Gen Z CEO advisor, Hannah Grady-Williams. She's sort of like a Gen Z whisperer for CEOs and executives. And she's the author of a new book called A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z, Inside Strategies to Empower Your Team. And we get into all of it. And if you are a native analog, that is to say somebody over the age of 35, this is a must listen because Hannah has a tremendous amount of insights for how those of us who are native analogs can bridge the gap to uh, work with, to recruit and to build our companies with. Uh, a whole new slew of native digitals, and in particular, the youngest of the native digitals, Gen Z, who, as you know, are already entering the workforce en masse. Now, to put it bluntly, most native analogs don't get it and are not ready for the simple fact that everything about the way we live, work, and play is changing as this new category of human beings emerges. Luckily, however, Hannah is here to help. Also want to say a special thank you to my friend Tom Schwab, who's the founder of Interview Valet, who uh, connected me to Hannah. Thanks, Tom. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And then there are some podcast reviewers who call us overrated, not worth it, and offensive. Whatever you call us, we are on a mission to produce a breakthrough in real, authentic dialogue. Our friends at Warrior Angels Rescue are helping to rescue our Afghani sisters and brothers right now. You see, after the United States left Afghanistan, we left countless Afghanis who worked with our government and military for decades. And those people now are some of the most at-risk people on planet Earth. And Warrior Angels Rescue is working hard right now to rescue those folks and get them out of harm's way in Afghanistan. Visit Warrior Angels Rescue today. That's warriorangelrescue.org today. Crack open your wallet and make a difference. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Hannah, it sure is great to see you. How are you? Oh, Christopher, I'm I'm great. I actually just got back from the beach, so I feel really, really refreshed right now. It's it's a nice feeling for once in a while. Where did you go to the beach? We went. So a good friend of mine, uh, we went to Hilton Head, South Carolina. So I I haven't been there. Oh gosh, it's probably been five or six years. The last time I went, I went with my six other siblings right after Disney World. My my parents surprised us after a trip to Disney World. We we got so disappointed because the, you know my parents cut our vacation short by a couple days, but then they brought us up to Hilton Head and we had a blast. So that was my one of my last trips I can think of that I went with my entire family, all six of my siblings. So 
<laughs> so you don't often meet uh, somebody who's one of uh, seven. So uh, tell me a little bit about wh- what that's like. Oh my gosh, I, I can't. I can't even describe the experience of growing up as one of seven. So I'm actually the oldest of seven. So that, I mean, I don't know if, are you, do you have any siblings? I have one younger sister. Okay. So you know what it's like being the oldest. I have a feeling being the oldest of seven is different than being the oldest of two, but please (laughs) keep going. So yes, quite, quite different. But I, the more people I speak with who are the oldest child, whether they have one younger sibling or three or, or 12, the, the tendencies kind of remain the same where you've got some sense of pressure to perform and to be the role model and, you know, to always be there for your siblings. So growing up, I just, oh my gosh, I can remember so many conversations where my siblings would come to me instead of my parents to talk about, you know, all their problems. So that was always interesting. But in terms of what we got to do all the time is we, you know, my parents decided to homeschool us as well. So I I remember from a very early age, in fact, one of my earliest memories of school was my mom had a tradition. It was me and my next sister down, Samantha. She's 21. I'm 23. And we were, I guess we were just entering kindergarten and preschool. So she and I decided with my mom that one of the traditions we would have every year was to plant a fruit tree outside our house and let it grow with us. So by the time we were, you know, 12, 13, we had six or seven fruit trees that would grow up and we could mark our progress, you know, for the different school years. So I'm in North Carolina. It's pretty chilly. So one year we decided to plant an orange tree and we actually successfully produced oranges <laughs> for, you know, a couple years in a row, which I was pretty proud of considering the frost here. Um, so anyway, that was one of my earliest memories. And my my parents did a wonderful job of helping us really experience history for example, so I remember my sister and I, it was the two of us, and then our third sister had come along by this point, but she was a baby. So my mom hitched Catherine up on her back, kind of like Sacagawea, and we took a Lewis and Clark expedition, or at least that's what she called it. So we would, my sister and I got backpacks on, we packed our own snacks, and then we walked with our mom. I forget how long, we, we went to our grandmother's house. I think it was a good 10-mile walk that we started in the morning and we we did this adventure and my mom would stop us along the way and share stories with us about the Lewis and Clark expedition and what they were what they accomplished and you know who Sacagawea was and how she guided Lewis and Clark so i i just have those experiences from a very early age and my my mom still does that with my youngest siblings who are still in you know elementary school wow that your mom sounds incredible what's her uh, what's her name hannah her name is angie angie she must be an extraordinary human being. She is phenomenal, and she runs a business as well on the side. So it's she. She's superwoman in my eyes. So she's a mompreneur or mom, exactly. mompreneur or whatever mom-preneur. we're supposed to say. <laughs> yeah, and she's actually over the years she's started several businesses and had to figure out kind of what worked for her. But she's she's amazing. Very cool. Well, it's um, uh, I, I've been very much looking forward to our conversation. Um, and, and maybe let me start with um, what do you think are the differences between, uh, let's just maybe have a little fun with this, Hannah, between you and me. If I'm a native analog and you're a native digital, and if I'm Gen X and you're Gen Z, 
what are the things about you that are different than me that maybe might not be so obvious? Oh, gosh, there are, there are so many. And when I think of the differences between you and me, I think of the differences between my parents and I. I distinctly remember... Easy, easy. <laughs> You're actually probably younger than my parents. So, you know, you know. But um, so I could be older than your parents, but who gives a shit? <laughs> oh, we're we're just gonna we're just gonna pretend. We'll we'll just group you all into a category like everybody in marketing <laughs> does, right? <laughs> so, I I would say I can distinctly remember times in my childhood where, if you just talk about technology, you know the the thing that seems obvious to all of us. You know, you think about the image of of a Gen Zer, or you think about the image of a Gen Xer, and they're very different when it comes to you know what what are the stereotypes. Well, Gen Z, you know, you think about all the kids sitting around the table, constantly on their phones, you know, not paying attention to anything. And I remember my mom and my dad would often tell us as kids, get off your phone, stop crossing your arms. You got to look like you're engaged with the people around you. And I remember thinking as a teenager, mom, dad, you, you don't really truly understand what the world of technology actually means. To you, you think it's a distraction or something that's taking my mind and my presence away from the people around me. And the way I see it is a door that opens me to experiences I never could have had in my natural environment. And I've, as I've grown older, I've realized that that distinction of the way that my generation looks at the world and the way that, that your generation or my parents' generation looks at the world is not only you know a difference between generations in terms of you know it's it's not just let's make fun of the old people let's make fun of the young people this is a very different way of looking at things looking at life my, I look at my siblings. I have a 15-year-old brother. He's the only one of us who's who's a guy. There's there's six girls and one boy, and he is smack in the middle. And as you can imagine, you know, everyone's <laughs> wow. like poor guy, right? That in in fact, he's he's kind of a ladies' man. He's grown up around a, a lot of girls. And of course, all, all his sisters bring their friends over. I think he's kind of lucky. But... I think he might be lucky too. I mean, I realize he may never get into the bathroom, but I bet you um, uh, all of his <laughs> sisters have friends that come over and hang out and stuff. And so he's he must be exposed to a giant amount of ladies. Oh, he is. He is. You take six women and multiply that. You know, he's he's quite quite the guy right there. But um, but anyway, his perspective on um, TikTok, for example, you know, he and my sister filmed dance videos all last year. They tell me all the time about the financial concepts they've learned from TikTok. You know, the people they're watching who are 18 and investing in real estate or the education they were able to get in, you know, 30 seconds on a video. And my parents look at them and they and, and one of their reactions is to punish them by taking away screen time. You know, I, I don't think this is just my parents. I know for a fact it's not. This is something that parents around the globe try to, you know, they try to get their teenager to engage with the outside world by stripping them of technology. But what they don't realize, you know, if I'm looking from a, a Gen Xer's perspective or a boomer's perspective, I think of technology maybe the same way as you would think of a newspaper or think of any other technological innovation that might distract you from family time at the dinner table. But the way my generation sees it is 
not only are we getting access to an entirely new world of people, you know, when my brother and sister are making dance videos on TikTok and getting educated through TikTok, it's no longer just a, a, a distraction or entertainment like a movie might have been for another generation. It's actually a portal to a new world. It's a, it's a portal. It's a new way of, of thinking. And this this distinction, you know, these these things that my generation has a different perspective on are influencing so many of the way uh, that that consumer products are going to have to adapt, that businesses are going to have to recruit and attract em- employees differently. So I think, to, you know, to, to think about the differences between our generation, even from a technological lens, when you think about uh, TikTok, for example, TikTok is revolutionizing the way that people learn, the way that my generation learns. And in fact, I um, I think I shared this with you, but um, last time, but I think we we have this perception as as employees sometimes, at least from you know your generation, from Gen X or from the Boomer generation, that that Gen Z should be grateful. For example, when a, a senior leader gives up their time to come in and you know teach these new interns what they know about life and business and all this, and they they put together these elaborate workshops, you know, four hours or eight hour workshops, and they're shocked when Gen Z's sitting there thinking, "Well, I could have just learned learned almost everything we went through today in a one or two minute video. So these are the types of things that are really changing the landscape of everything in life because my generation is as you know as you've put it before is is a new category of human being. It's just a very very different way of looking at things. And so thank you for that. That was great. And so when you hear that um millennials and Gen Z are a new category of human being. That resonates with you, Hannah? Absolutely. I, I think it's a great way of describing the new age, is the dawn of a new age that we're entering. And Gen Alpha, who's coming after Gen Z, is is going to even bring this to the surface in a much more um, broad perspective, I believe. And what's interesting to add to to this conversation about the category of human being discussion is, I, I don't know, have you read the book? In, <laughs> if you say yes, I'm going to be really shocked, Christopher, but have you ever read Ready Player One? I have not. Okay. You, need, you should add it to your reading list, or I, I'm sure there's some great audio renditions. But Ready Player One is sci-fi. There was a movie that came out about it a couple of years ago. But I love the book. And the reason I love the book is because basically the premise of this story is that there is a a character and he grows up in 2045 in a world that is entirely digital. Basically, what what happens to the world's economy is it's basically collapsing. Most people are living in poverty. They're living in stacked trailers that are like, you know, eight to 10, eight to 10 trailers stacked on top of each other. But the reason they live in such poverty is because there's a new video gaming technology that has come out. And this video game technology is one that people basically enter these new cells. They put on visors and they enter these new cells 
And once they enter the video game, they can create an avatar that makes them completely a completely new identity. And this avatar can be completely anonymous, right? So if your name's Bob, you can create an avatar that's named Python. And that avatar becomes the new you inside of this world. And this world is so extensive that there are hundreds of thousands of planets you can travel to. Your entire school system or your edu- the education system is all done virtually. So you enter a virtual class with a virtual teacher. You virtually sit down in the chair and you go through biology or history. And then the screen prevents you from exiting the class or, you know, doing something else while you're in school. Basically, what, what the book is describing or this world is that there will be a future in which, whether it looks just like Ready Player One or not, but there will be a future in which the digital world is a place that we spend more time than the analog world. And you're starting to see this already happen with my generation, where 90% of Gen Z in a recent national study said that we consider ourselves gamers. I actually fall into the 10%, which is probably why I'm a consultant who can actually, you know, speak speak with uh, leaders from other generations without getting shot at. But uh, but the 90, there's 90% of my generation who would consider themselves gamers. They're spending hours a day inside of virtual worlds. And while we're not to the point where we spend almost every waking hour, you know, conducting our, our own business or, um, or doing school inside of these worlds yet, we're quickly progressing to a point where that will be the norm. And and you even see this right now with the fact that digital currencies and and the fact that you can you can don, you know, you can buy and don um, new skins or new virtual clothing inside of a video game. These types of things are only going to increase in power. And yet I look all around me and the the companies who are adapting to this on the forefront of it are few and far between. And the ones who are still caught in the analog world are, are you know, the, the vast majority of businesses. Thank you for that, that um, you are you are um, bringing to life some of my suspicions and, and educating me on some new things. And, and I'm, I'm so excited about that. And so the aha for me is that um, my generation, Gen X, uh, and the baby boomers, if you put us all together and just call us, you know, our parents and call us the native analogs, we're the last native analogs. And you're the first of a new type of person who is native digital. That is to say, and, and you tell me if this is right that your primary experience of life, you were just underscoring it. Are we now at a point, Hannah, where you would say, and I know you can't speak for an entire generation, but I mean, this is what you do uh, for a living and so forth. But you would say that for the most part, um, your generation, their primary experience of life is a digital experience. I would. I would say that the primary experience, if, if you take primary and secondary, our primary experience of life or the one we place most value on, which is a distinction there, the one we place most, most value on is the digital experience. Now, what's interesting, and, and this may be something that will shock you know, that shocked me, you know, it it shocked, it shocked me not because I didn't think this way, but because the more Gen Zers that I asked when I was, you know, doing research for my book, for my business, 
was I, I was basically asking Gen Zers, because you grow up, you know, you grew up in a digital world. And because you're so familiar with technology and this is the way of the future, you know, because of that, how do you want to spend time with people? Like, what is your preference? How do you want to be communicated with? And the vast majority of them actually said, we want to have face-to-face communication. You know, we want to have conversations like this, like you and I are having. So I think we're, we've reached a point. Can I interrupt you there for a second, yeah, Hannah? Of course. So right now for you, we, we are having a face-to-face experience. Absolutely. Okay. Now, interestingly, we are face-to-face, but where are you? What part of the country are you in? I'm on the East Coast, Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm in Santa Cruz, California. And for me, we're having a digital conversation. But for you, we're having a face-to-face conversation. Because if I were to say you and I were having a face-to-face conversation, what I would mean, that is to say the context I would be using to say it, that is to say the unspoken of what I'm saying is, if I said to a friend of mine, Hannah, and I had a face-to-face conversation, I would mean in the RL. Right. And when you say a a face-to-face conversation, you mean in the DL, so to speak, (laughs) in digital life. Exactly. There's the difference, right? Yes. In in fact, it's that is that is one of the distinctions is to me, this type of meeting is the same, it's equally as valuable, it's equally as high touch, it's equally as meaningful as if I was sitting right there in your home studio and we were right across from each other. So that is that's going to be a major shift. Now, but there is a, a second layer to add to this, and it comes back to this this idea of face-to-face or even in-person conversations is we read, you know, all the time, Ready Player One being an example, what we read all the time about these, these sci-fi worlds where everything's virtual and we live on, you know, virtual planets doing virtual things. And yet we see in my generation that the closer we progress to that being the norm, the more we crave as a generation being with people, the more we crave community, the more we crave mentorship. And so this is one of the things that it, it may be a stereotype that's easy to assume as generations become more and more digitally native is that our our natural human instinct of being together and wanting to partner with one another and wanting to be mentored that's not going to go away and i think a lot of a, a lot of maybe your generation or my parents generation have trouble seeing that you see study after study i i was watching one recently that was done out of the uk where they put 6 year olds in a classroom in this you know beautiful white classroom they sat them on little chairs and they gave them ipads and they and they put you know they were basically trying to see what do the six-year-olds do when they're sitting with other people and they're on an ipad well they stuck their you know they stuck the kids with ipads and they started a timer and of course all the kids heads went down to their ipads they started playing their games well then someone one of the adults brought in a tray of cupcakes and sweets and they put it on the table about 10 feet away from the from the students and they left the room. And then they observed through the cameras that the students didn't even smell the cupcakes. They didn't even get up to get, you know, the sweets, which would have been very tempting for any six-year-old. They were glued to these iPads. 
Well, then the third stage of the experiment was they took the iPads away to observe what would happen. And instead of these kids getting mad or frustrated about not having the iPads, the kids got up, they went to explore the sweet table, and they started playing with each other. They started interacting and building hideouts and, and, and socializing with one another. Now, all the comments in this study and the output of the study were mostly native analogs saying, well, look at how those kids are not normal because now they, you know, they were on those iPads and they were glued to them. They didn't even see the sweets. What's their problem? Look at the childhood we're creating for our kids. But my perspective was, did you realize what happened when they took the iPads away? Those kids didn't sit there and just twiddle their thumbs and start screaming. They actually got up and they still knew how to socialize with one another. They still knew how to interact. They still knew that they could have time on the iPad and time away. And they and each of those interactions was equally beautiful. So so to come back to this idea of the, the face-to-face, I think we're going to start seeing this curve where we've got this digital communication horizon and these digital worlds that are that are arising. But my generation is going to find ways to connect and build community in very different ways from what maybe community or how community was defined for native analogs. But we're still going to find it because we still crave it because we're still humans. Yes. And interestingly enough, this is a face to face conversation for you. Yes. It is. Yes. And so earlier, Hannah, when you said that your generation craves face-to-face, if we get super nuanced and accurate about that, is it digital face-to-face or in-person face-to-face? So when you say face-to-face, do you assume it's a digital face-to-face? Let me maybe start there. Sure. So yes and no. I would say a combination is, is the ideal. So I get this question all the time about not just communication, but when it comes to work, for example. You know, all the question everyone's been asking is, do we work in person? Do we work remotely? Or do we have a hybrid approach? And to me, the answer is simple. But of course, companies have been wrestling with this for the past year. To me, as a Gen Zer, even though I recognize that or I see what we're doing right now, as a face-to-face conversation, I think we can get equally as much accomplished from a business perspective, from from this perspective, you know, just being on a a webcast, a Zoom, a, a conference call, I see us being able to accomplish equally as much. However, When I say face-to-face, there's also an in-person component that I think Gen Z will begin to crave even more as the world becomes more digitized. So to answer your question directly, it's both. I see this as as being beneficial enough or sufficient for work or or business related things. When it comes to personal interaction, there's never going to be a replacement for physically being there with my family or my husband or my friends. So there it's got two sides of the coin for sure. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. So um, I find it shocking, Hannah, that it's sort of not front page news that this, that this aha, that what we're seeing here is not a normal generational shift. What we're seeing is actually the last of one category of human and the beginning of a new category of human. I'm, I'm stunned that that isn't that people aren't writing about that, and that's not being talked about broadly, and so forth and so on. Uh, 
do I have my head up my ass? Uh, am I over uh, exact? I'm like, is it, am I wrong about why? The, like, uh, should this be bigger news or am I fucking stupid? <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And this this should be headlines. This should be everywhere. This should be the thing we're talking about, whether it's in home life or we're talking about this from a, a the perspective of being a leader or being a, a business owner. Everyone needs to be thinking about this because, you know, I, I was actually, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned this because I was doing some research on the very idea of of just generations. I was looking back at some documents from the 1800s, you know, late 1800s, where a father was writing in a letter about, oh, you know, oh, my son, he just thinks he knows everything. And he thinks, you know, he's got all these ideas, blah, 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 blah. I can't, you know, he'll learn. <laughs> he'll, he'll be shocked to, you know, learn what the real world is like. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, we've been doing this for ages, right? We've been, we've been doing this this banter back and forth of the young generation only has these, you know, these qualities. They think they know so much. They think they've got these ideas. And then we've been disrespecting our, our the, you know, the oldest generations in a lot of ways for discounting their ability to adapt and their ability to change. But I think you're absolutely 100% on, you know, nail on the head when you talk about this this new category of human being and how we should be we should be, be making this front and center of our talent strategies, our marketing strategies because this is not going away. This is the dawn of a new era. And and in fact when leaders ask me all the time like what's something I can do to start assimilating to this new category and my first recommendation to them is spend time with them, but my second is read the types of of creative novels and and movies that they're watching and reading because in so many ways i mean i know you talk about this too is you create the future many years in advance by what you write about what you choose to produce the things we dreamt about in star trek that are starting to become true the things we dreamt about you know years ago and and we've laid the groundwork and the foundation for that for many many years from what our ancestors have prescribed as the technology of the future. So if you're not astute um, and attuned to that right now on what what is the thing that our teens or our young people are reading and watching at this point, then you're going to be behind the curve with the changes your company is going to make. So this, this should be what we're broadcasting because we're not, there's no going back. There's no going back to the analog world. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm always shocked when people don't realize that in the United States of America, and I may be a little bit off on the numbers, but uh, if I remember correctly, Hannah, I believe if you take uh, boomers and Gen Xers, put them together, native analogs, I think there's roughly 138 million, I think is the number, somewhere in that range. And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if you know different, um, uh, millennials and Gen Z are about 140 million. Yes, we've, we've right just recently surpassed the native analogs. Right. And so to me, that underscores even more how shocking it is that this isn't a broader topic. So with all that said, let's look at this. You, you know, you mentioned uh, talent, recruiting, et cetera, uh, culture building, team building, um, the way we construct our companies and our cultures. And then, of course, the way we do marketing. So talent 
and marketing strategies. You know, you, you are somebody who, for, for, for a living, you help companies, entrepreneurs, executives, and the like, figure this out. Most of whom I would imagine are native analogs, right? Yes. And they're trying to recruit native digitals or they're trying to market to native digitals. So if I was a CEO or a senior executive coming to you and saying, Hannah, listen, I want to bridge the digital divide here, the generational digital divide. And, um, and I want to build a company that attracts legendary native digitals, uh, to come work here as well as, uh, endears, endear, we endear ourselves greatly to um, native digital uh, prospects, customers, consumers, buyers, users, subscribers, etc. Um, where would you start with me? Oh my gosh, the, the, this is a massive question, and of course you're gonna you're gonna hear my first answer, which is we need to know where you are. We we need to know as a as a company. Are you the leader who is the one voice among the entire, you know, crowd of employees at your company who's shouting, let's change, let's change? Or are you truly able to lead a movement and a change? I mean, this change toward being adaptable to the digital native generation and to understanding how do you recruit us? How are we different from millennials? How do you build a culture that attracts us? Starts just like any other change would. It starts with great leaders who are willing to put up with the BS that's going to come up in their organization and, and willing to tell people straight what they need to do and, and the direction that they're headed. For many companies, especially in the manufacturing, the textile world, you know, those industries that tend to lag behind, this is a conversation that unfortunately is going, they're, they're going to react to in 15 or 20 years. So if if you're if 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 leaders you know who are working with me are coming from a company that is that steeped in tradition like many companies are with a blue collar workforce for example then what I want to understand is how ready are they for change number 1 um, and number 2 I want to understand where are they in terms of attracting, recruiting, retention, and leadership? Um, in fact, I, I actually just got back from New Jersey earlier this week, and I was working with a, a wonderful company in healthcare. They've got you know multiple offices, physical therapy, chiropractic, et cetera. And something I observed, because they're one of the most forward-thinking companies who are kind of leading this innovation in healthcare right now, um, one of the things I noticed consistently among their staff and their leadership is that they have representation from from Gen Z, from a native, a native digital generation, all across their offices, all across their HR team, all across their mid-level management. So the message that's communicated to a native digital when they start at this company is you're not just answering to only folks over the age of 40 or 50 who've been doing this for a long time. Your actual managers and your supervisors are much like you. You know, they're, they're, they, they understand what it's like to be in college just a couple years ago or to not go to college. You know, they understand the perspective that you're coming from or the lost focus that you might have, the fact that you don't know what your career path might look like. So to answer your question directly, the first recommendation that I have that, that I give any company is they need an audit. They need to understand 
where they are right now. You know, what are what are their strengths, their weaknesses? What have they already done well to shift for millennials? And how do you take that a step further for Gen Z? Or maybe even get a better understanding of how the native digitals, Gen Z, are different from many of the older millennials. And then my second recommendation is to base based on that, you know, the audit, based on what we know about the company, take small steps. Because like we know with any change initiative, you're never going to have sustainable change if the change is scattered, if it's overhauled, if your leadership is not ready to make that shift. So one of the things I, I do with leaders is I work with the executive teams first, because change starts at the top, the readiness to to change in such a drastic direction starts at the top. And then we start building in the layers of the mid-level management. Then we start asking the frontline employees, you know, what would you do if you were in mid-level management? You know, how do you make those steps um, in a better direction? So that's kind of my like broad overview of of what we would do. Um, But in terms of specific recommendations to any company that says, you know, I want to be on the forefront right now. I want to be on the forefront of being a company that is recognized for an incredible culture that attracts the best and brightest talent and then keeps them once they come. There's a couple of things that that those companies have to be looking for right now. And one of those things is the power of influence, the power of influencers. This is going to affect the attracting and recruiting departments of a company, and it's going to impact retention in a powerful way. So here's what I mean by influencers. We're all familiar with influence in terms of, you know, a, a company or you know, a company sponsoring an influencer to pitch their product or, or you know, pitch their their makeup or whatever it is. We're very familiar with that. But for some reason, I don't see a lot of companies in my work who've recognized the power of influence in their recruiting. I don't see a lot of companies who understand that in order to attract the best and brightest talent, their people, their, their leaders in their company should have something powerful to share. This is something I think about a lot, Hannah, which is uh, if I were a CMO today, a chief marketing officer, um, I would spend a lot of time, I think, thinking about our people. Because if you're at a company, you know, I was talking to an entrepreneur today that has about six or eight people and he's getting ready to launch some new shit. And one of the things we talked about is what those six or eight people could do on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and, and so forth and so on to help multiply this. And then of course, if you're the CMO of a major corporation and you have thousands of employees, I mean, don't you have an aha that says, Hey, wait a minute. Um, if thousands of people were sharing digitally about our mission, about our vision, about the difference we're trying to make in the world, about the kinds of people we're trying to attract, uh, about the kinds of customers we're trying to attract, um, et cetera, we would have the greatest multiplier ever. But it seems to me that CMOs, I'll throw them under the bus because I was one, you know, are willing to spend tens of millions of dollars on asinine branding campaign that have been proven with data science to not make a fucking difference. However, they won't invest the same amount of time, money and energy figuring out how to transform their organization into evangelists 
for what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what is so interesting to me, Christopher, is the number of companies I work with who spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, not only on the brand side, like you just mentioned, but also on ads, on ads, on social media, Indeed, ZipRecruiter, to try to funnel in employees. And then they they post their job descriptions and then they hope and pray and, and just, just pray that the right applicant will walk in the door. And I'm sitting here thinking, when I look... Okay, so actually, let me, let me ask you this stat because I thought this was very interesting. If you could guess what percentage of Gen Zers or Native Digitals are looking on social media for jobs, what, what would you guess? My spider senses is it, it might be uh, lower than would be obvious. Maybe, uh, so uh, there's a meaningful percentage, or it'd have to be at some level, but word of mouth uh, was, is, and always will be the most powerful way of communicating things, particularly of substance. So mm-hmm. if... So I don't know. Let me ask. Let me turn it around and say, is it more relationships, a.k.a. word of mouth? A friend gets a job at a great place and tells me about it or things along those lines with maybe social being uh, a little further down the rung or, or am I off uh, in the bozone layer here, Hannah? <laughs> no, you are on point. And you're one of two people who have asked that question to who have ever said that. Most people guess that 90% or more than that, 95% of Gen Z is looking on social media for jobs. But in in the most recent study on this, when you ask Gen Z, where are you looking? Only 33% of them said they're actually looking on social media. But the number of, of people who said, actually, I'm going to my friends, my family, my present colleagues, you know, the, the people I'm asking in my network was 64%. And that's actually higher than it was for the millennials who are going to job boards and and social media. So what's what's fascinating to me is that companies, no matter you know, like you said, it's been been ages, decades, referrals and and friends of family, those types of sources have been instrumental for people finding jobs. it It is astonishing to me that a CMO or a CHRO. It's astonishing to me they're not spending over half their time working on how do I mobilize my entire employee staff, my mid-level managers in all different divisions. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, but how do I mobilize those people to be their best selves in a very virtual or digital environment, right? Because they're doing great work already. They're producing amazing things. They're leading people well. But no Gen Zer or Native Digital can see that because we're not working at the company. No, no Native Digital is is going to get that experience inside your company. You have to show us online. So, so here's what's interesting, and, and I'll um, I'll kind of build a little bit of a picture here. So when I was just married, so this what I I got married at twenty. So I'm I've been married for almost three years, and. When my husband and I were on our honeymoon, we were on this, we went to New Orleans, we're on this wonderful 
ferry, you know, boat dinner excursion with jazz and whatnot. And we walk down to the engine room. And my husband, he he his degree is now in you know math and analytics, but he also loves engineering. So we went to the in, to the um, engineering room where all of the you know the machines were working, and it was coal powered, and it was such a cool thing. And and anyway, we had this experience. And while we're standing there, and it's really loud, he he looks over to me and he says, wouldn't it be cool to work on a ship? You know, wouldn't it be cool to work on something like this and be a part of this every day? Now, just a few months before this, I had been scrolling through Instagram and I still get this, but I was scrolling through Instagram and on my stories, this advertisement for a cruise line, I don't even remember which cruise line it was, kept popping up of come work on our cruise line, you know, come, come be a chef, come be whatever. And I always skipped right through them. I can't even imagine how many hundreds of thousands of dollars this cruise line was dispensing to try to reach native digitals on their stories. I probably saw this advertisement 10 times over the course of a couple weeks. But I don't I don't remember what cruise line it was. All I remember is, you know, the crew the cruise ship with the pretty ocean. Now a few weeks after that, after I'd seen these advertisements, one of my good friends who had been working on the Carnival Cruise Line at the time as, uh, an, uh, I believe she was part of the production team. So she was posting videos of her, you know, setting up for productions, the type of food she was getting to eat, the excursion she was getting to go on when they got off, when they, you know, uh, when they debarked from the cruise ship, disembarked, can't talk today. <laughs> so when they got off the cruise ship. And I remember watching her stories and thinking, wow, that's the type of life that would be so interesting. What if I got to travel? So fast forward to this time on my honeymoon. I'm sitting there with my husband. We're on a ship. And he said, wouldn't it be so cool to work on a boat? And I said, you know what? My friend Sarah has been working on a cruise line and she seems to be having a blast why don't we apply together? Like, wouldn't that be an interesting first year of marriage to ditch everything we've got, you know, ditch our apartment, ditch our expenses and go work together on a cruise line. Now, here's the interesting distinction here. The reason I had that 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 idea pop to mind, the reason my husband and I got intrigued by this was not because of the advertisement I had seen. In fact, I only thought about that ad months after this because I was trying to think about how did this idea of working in a cruise line enter my head. But it was only because my friend had been posting that she had been posting these stories and these engaging scenarios. That was the reason it came into my mind. The point being here that the power is not in the ad, it's in the influencer. And companies are not taking advantage of this yet. I, I haven't seen companies powerfully do this. They're not mobilizing their employees to be influencers. And that, that's what I would love to see in the future. Got it. Thank you for that. It, 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 it was my suspicion. And you have done a great job of clarifying that for me. I also... Um, you know, given everything that's going on right now with Facebook and Instagram and Congress and with the, the gal who came forward as the whistleblower and so forth, um, I'm just curious if there's anything you want to say about Instagram, Facebook, and, and sort of the way you think your generation uh, looks at all of this. Mm. this. This is something my friends and I have been talking a lot about. I think what's coming to light 
so very often and every time one of these debacles happens or there's a blackout on a social media feed or whatever the case might be, is it brings to mind how fragile the entire corporate structure we've built around these platforms is. It brings to mind how influencers as a whole are not going to be able to rely on one platform or one source of information. And I wholeheartedly believe that the democratization of platforms where you've got these creators who are finding other ways to monetize, who are not just investing everything into one platform. You know, they've got not only a YouTube channel, but they're also podcasting. Maybe they're also Twitch streaming. They also have a newsletter. That that this broad spread of, of information and the ways they're spreading themselves out is only going to continue to grow in its importance. So uh, my, my prediction, and who knows what will happen in the future, but my prediction is that the way we've gone so far with Facebook and, and Google and Instagram and, and these type of you know, larger platforms that have built millions and millions of users, we'll begin to see that fade and people will begin to choose platforms that are more niched, more unique to their personality, the style they want to convey, the the goals they have with their influence. If that if that goal is to monetize as a creator, maybe they're going to go to, you know, may, maybe they'll take their YouTube channel and, you know, add Substack, for example. You know, maybe they'll start delivering written content. They're going to go somewhere that will make sense for their niche and we'll continue to see that spread out. And honestly, I think that's a great thing for the future of 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 democracy because we'll have more options, more choices. Interesting. And and what do you think about you know this uh, Facebook research that has been made public now about whether it's impact on um, um, pulling people apart and creating civil discourse or, or whether it's uh, the impact of Instagram on uh, young women and girls, sort of, if you will, the the evils of, in particular, Facebook. Um, what's your? How do you sort of synthesize that part of it? Yeah, I I think we're kind of in we're at the tipping point with with this conversation. So I'm going to kind of answer this in an indirect way because this is something that is so close to to my heart and my passion. I think that social media is always, no matter what the platform is, no matter if you're a man, a woman, or identify as neither, that social media is always going to be an amplification of what already exists in the human heart. And I am a huge proponent, and maybe this comes from the way that I was raised, comes from the friends that I surround myself with, but we have these conversations all the time in my family, with my friends from all over the globe, about how we are going to have to do, as, and when I say we, I mean Gen Zers, digital natives, an incredibly astute job in the, now and in the future of teaching ourselves to be critically thoughtful, to be critical thinkers, to be able to make choices for ourselves that will better ourselves and our communities. Because if social media is only an amplification of the evil that already exists, of the fact that people are always going to find a way to fight, to to be divisive. And at the same time, we're always going to find a way to come together, you know, a way to build community. Because social media is only an amplification of that, I don't point fingers at any of the companies 
who have built technology or tools that amplifies that. I point fingers back at myself, at my own parents, at my friends, at, at what at the choices that we make as a whole, as a generation. And my my gut feeling about the future is that the role of a parent and the role of the, the school system, the role of education, and the role of institutions that exist, such as churches and community gatherings, those roles are going to become increasingly more important in helping shape our lives, helping shape the values that we grow up with, helping shape if we're able to decipher how to, you know, how to use the internet, how to use technology, and how to make good decisions or bad ones. So I know this is answering this indirectly, but I, I hate to predict something. My my thought is just to say, please, you know, as a community, my call, my call to action to the entire world just from my heart is let's equip our kids with a way to be critically thoughtful about their actions and about what they choose to use. And maybe that choice is get off of Instagram if it's not helpful or it's not safe or it's evil. You know, be be conscious of what you can personally handle. And, and I, I guess my call, and I talk about this with my friends, is how can we as the older Native Digitals help our younger siblings, help the people coming behind us understand the evils we've already experienced and understand that the power's in our hands. It's not just a corporation like Facebook deciding how we should choose to be as humans. That's our decision. That's that's the power we have, and we can shape what that looks like in the future. Thank you for that. That was that was awesome. Um, and so, uh, is there anything else you want to touch on as it relates to? the new sort of lens or the new mental scaffolding that companies that are, have been around for a while and therefore are native analog. Uh, most companies are still run by native analogs should or could be doing to create an environment where native digitals can thrive, particularly, particularly without sort of alienating the native analogs. Mm, mm. Yes. Uh- let me give a couple of very specific recommendations. And this is in terms of when I talk to leaders, the number one questions that I'm getting from them have to do with things that perhaps a native digital would find to be obvious or things that that we would think, why isn't everyone already doing this? So those are the, the things I want to I want to talk about right now because these things may be assumptions that former generations have that are simply not going to fly for my generation. They're, they're just not. One of those assumptions is the necessity of a college degree. The native analog generation continues to impress upon younger people this idea that a college degree is necessary. And yet 62% of my generation is saying, we don't care. We would rather not be in debt. We would rather not have a generic degree that is meaningless. We would rather have financial stability and the ability to invest and the ability to grow and learn in other ways. So the one of the number one things that I would suggest to any company who wants to be forward thinking right now is you're going to have to find a way if you want the best and brightest talent, you know, I, I tell leaders this all the time, if, if you want the best and brightest talent, you're going to have to rethink what education means because colleges are falling way behind. 
universities are not going to be the solution for my generation or especially coming up behind us, Generation Alpha. They are not going to be the end-all be-all. So some of the, the best companies that I, you know, I can point to as examples, Ashley Furniture right now was having a shortage of employees. They were, they were finding that they couldn't, they couldn't get talent in the door. So they created their own academy to train high school students directly out of out of out of high school actually they start they start earlier you know they start by engaging them during high school and and getting them interested in manufacturing in marketing they created their their own academy with their own certification program to bring those Gen Z employees through the ranks, land them a job in the company, get them the experience they need, and then laterally transfer them across the organization. That's the future. It's also, it's going to be harder for people to, because, you know, they can look at, okay, where'd you go to school? What'd you study? What was your grade point average? You know, there's this sort of measurements like okay stand on the scale how much do you weigh let's get how tall you are let's get what's that you know there's a measurement that goes on that that sort of uh allows for a siphoning in and a siphoning out um and 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 those standard measures what i hear you saying and i i I pose this as a question don't apply anymore i think we're we're shifting that way very quickly we're shifting to, to put it simply we're shifting back to the world of apprenticeships. Mm. We have come from a world of apprenticeships, you know, where the, the son of a baker would learn his trade and then take over his trade. And then, of course, the education system arose to help, you know, help educate students apart from a job so that their education was more universally uh, applicable, right? But now we're returning. We are coming back we're coming back to the world where apprenticeships, and I guess there'll be a different term for it. I don't know what that will be yet. But the idea of learning a trade or learning a skill set from an employer without the, ne- the necessity of a college de- degree is coming back into play. And the companies who are going to be on the forefront of this will create and, and design what that category is going to look like. They're going to create their own programs. They're going to create their own certifications. In fact, to get even bigger picture with this, I see a future in which the certifications that various companies build for themselves become nationally or internationally accredited, almost like their own university programs. And then that becomes transferable to another like organization or other organizations with a similar skill set. So if you have a marketing certification from Google, let's just take the giant companies as an example. Let's say you have a marketing certification or marketing degree, but it's now from Google instead of a traditional university. Well, that certification is going to transfer to Apple or to Samsung or to whomever you choose to work for. I see that as being the future. So if your company, you know, if if you're a company who is struggling with finding talent, it's really important to start thinking about how do we create our own education? You know, how do we create our own training that's going to add more value to our staff and create better retention while doing their attracting and recruiting? So you you went somewhere where I thought you might. I think many of us have been speculating about why is it that so many, why why we have this problem with hiring? I, I don't talk to a CEO or an entrepreneur ever now without hearing this problem. We can't get fill in the blank. 
And so um, what I wonder about is, is exactly this in order to, in order to get there from here is what your generation saying is um, we're looking for opportunities where we're going to come in with some abilities. We're going to come in with bright eyes and bushy tails or (laughs) however you want to think about it, enthusiasm and hopefully some generic smarts and a willingness to learn and a willingness to work hard and produce results, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're looking for, we don't want to go work for a company that's not going to grow and develop us. Absolutely. And so if you have a generic, boring, fuck job, forget it. But if you have an opportunity for us to come in, an apprentice, learn some things, build ourselves as we help build the company, then we're interested. And so I guess my question is, is the lack of that now, Hannah, part of why you think some younger people are uh, sitting on the sidelines and creating this um, hiring? I don't know if it's a crisis, but if it isn't, it's close enough. Yes. Yes, for sure. So I don't know the numbers around this, and I won't pretend to know what that breakdown is in terms of, you know, what what has been cause, causing the hiring crisis from, you know, COVID. And, and of course, there are many, many factors, especially if you split blue collar from white collar. But to your point about young people, one of the number one fears that I hear when I go undercover as a Gen Zer in, into a company, which I love. I love going. So you, you mystery, you pretend to be a candidate, right? That's exactly. one of the things that you do. And you document what it's like as a Gen Z candidate, as you're doing your James Bond uh, yeah. research move here or your Jane <laughs> Bond uh, <laughs> move here. Exactly. I just need somebody to outfit me with all of the James Bond gear, you know, but the, the car in particular. Um, but <laughs> yes. yeah, so I go undercover. I mystery shop the candidate experience all the way through the the mentorship, the training experience. And one of the things I hear, because of course I get to speak with other candidates who are my age. And one of the things I hear very frequently is something to the effect of, you know, I was so scared coming into this job that they were going to throw me in and that it would become very obvious that I don't really have a whole lot of experience or a, or a skill set that I thought I did because, you know, the college I went to or the program I went through, whether it was a two-year or four-year degree, they, I guess they taught me a lot of facts, but I really don't know what in the world I'm doing here. That's the number one fear that I hear from Gen Zers entering a new job. And I don't think this is ununique to any generation per se. But the difference with Gen Z is that we're exiting school as one of the most educated generations in terms of we Generation Z has the largest number of college degrees or is on track to have the largest number of college degrees of any generation. But the college degree doesn't mean as much anymore. Right. Because we the education has been has been watered down because now it you know it doesn't mean as much. You can like me, I, I graduated with my bachelor's degree at 18 because I decided to do the entire thing online starting at 14. And I've learned more from from you know, half a year working for a company than I ever did in four years of college. I've learned more from TikTok for that matter. But because that fear of coming into... Hold on, Hannah, I hate to interrupt yeah. you. Did you just say that you've learned more from TikTok than you did from four years of college? Is that what you just oh, said? Oh, heck yes. Heck yes. I My, my international business textbook were, were seven to nine years old. 
how are you supposed to learn about international business that changes on a daily and hourly basis? How are you supposed to learn that from a seven-year-old textbook? And, and, and you feel like you can learn shit about international business that's super valuable on TikTok. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, I learned about a website. This, this is not international business per se, but, but just a marketing or business tactic in general. I learned about a website you can go to where you can upload a blog post and it turns it into a video for you in, an, in about 30 seconds. So instead of having to create your own videos or spend time creating content per se for at least a certain type of video, you can take your existing blog post that you may have written, whether it was for school, whether it was for uh, for you know your own personal website, you can create that video, it spits it out in 30 seconds, and you now have video content. I learned that on TikTok in a 15 second video and access to a resource that I probably never would have heard of otherwise. There's so many tools and resources on TikTok and and so many pieces of advice from successful business owners, entrepreneurs on TikTok that you're never going to get in school because universities are so far behind. Fascinating. Universities are so far behind. Hmm. They are. So just to, to wrap up this thought about what it's like, you know, when I'm undercover and watching yeah. these Gen Zers come into an organization and try to try to find their bearings. You know, they're trying to figure out what do I want to do? Do I want to keep pursuing this path? The organizations who address those fears from a management standpoint are going to lead the charge in retention. Because if you can make that Gen Zer feel like the fact that they don't, quote unquote, know anything is, is actually an asset to your organization, that, that their bright eyes, that their bright perspective, their fresh perspective is going to be a differentiator for them. And you put people in leadership who are their age so they can see that, you know, I may have just started this week, but I've got a 25-year-old colleague who's already on these leadership teams and look at the change they've gotten to create during their time here. Those types of leaders are going to have a massive influence on your young talent coming in, on your young, very educated, mind you, talent that are coming in even from high school with a skill set you never would have gotten in the past in everything you can imagine. Because schools, no matter how much we bash them, are doing a really good job in many areas of integrating technology and learning and different ways of thinking into an education program. So your high schoolers that you're hiring may come to you with a greater skill set than you ever thought possible, but they're going to lack skills in the areas that you may think are common knowledge as a native analog. Thank you for that. I think that was very, very powerful. And I want to bounce something off of you. So I myself, I'm in a business relationship with a 30-year-old. So maybe not quite a uh, Gen Z, not quite a millennial, but certainly in the domain of native digital for sure. And there's three of us. So the the 30 year old, is, his name is Cole. And then uh, the other guy, Eddie is, I don't know exactly how old Eddie is, but maybe 45 is somewhere in there and I'm 53. And so it would be very easy for, in this example, Eddie and I, we're clearly the Obi-Wan Kenobi type guys in this deal. I mean, clearly, clearly we are. It'd be very easy for us to treat 
young Skywalker as a subordinate or as uh, not as valuable or our job is to mentor him, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That there's this sort of org chart context that sits in it. And there's sort of this reverence for experience in your elders that sits in it. And of course, the older, more experienced person is the, the, the person on top, right? Right. That's not at all the relationship that the three of us have. It's not my personal relationship with Cole. And I, I know I can speak for Eddie. It's not his relationship either. And we sort of had this aha. And it's sort of, you know, I've had this my whole career around age diversity. Because it felt like for a very long time in my career, I was the youngest guy in the room. Then one day you're not, of course. But here's the aha. Different and valuable. And so if I look at the relationship between the three of us, there is no doubt in my mind that Cole is as valuable as Eddie and I are. It's a different kind of value. It's not the Obi-Wan value. It's the Luke Skywalker value. And so my sense is, as a native analog, there are far too many native analogs who are stuck in the hierarchy kind of model as opposed to the different but equally valuable kind of uh, mindset. That's my sense of it on my side of the digital divide. What's your sense of it on yours, so to speak? First of all, I think you're very much correct that there's still a mindset of Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker of the idea that an older generation passes down knowledge or that the that that the role of mentorship is simply one way. And I have two thoughts for this. Um, the first is this term called reverse mentorship has been increasingly coming up, right? It's this concept that the value that someone brings is very different when you're 20 or 30 years into a career versus if you're only two years or maybe you're fresh out of college. But like you just described, both individuals bring an incredible sense of value, even if that value looks different. So many companies are taking on this approach, or at least trying to think about how do we build a culture that is built around reverse mentorship, about when when an older employee takes a younger staff member who's maybe it's their first job or second job and they take them under their wing is kind of the term that in the past has been used right the older older generation takes the younger one under their wings and mentors them and guides them nowadays it looks much more like two individuals sitting across the table having coffee and both of them asking questions the older generation might ask the question what do I need to know about your generation to successfully lead you? And then the younger generation might ask the question, how in the world have you grown have you have you been in this career 30 years and and have been able to make so much positive change? You know, those types of questions go back and forth across the table instead of it being one way. So that's that is the the first concept that I would share is reverse mentoring is is the way of the future. It's, it's going to be really important. But, but and before I, I want to get your thoughts on this, but the, my second 
the second kind of idea or visual that might help me depict this as a, a digital native to a digital analog is that in the past, what we've seen is the we all know the term the corporate ladder, right? It's it's very linear. It's the idea that you have to knock someone off above you before you can grow. The idea that someone above you is always looking down, extending the rope. What Gen Z or native digitals is asking for instead is a different definition of what growth and respect means. We would rather have a jungle gym. We'd rather play a little bit on the monkey bars and extend our helping hand down to maybe that older generation that's on the ground trying to figure out how to do a split or whatever they're doing. We'd like to play a little bit on the ropes course. We'd like to bounce around. Have you been coming to my Pilates classes, Hannah? <laughs> oh, man. Hey, as long as you're not a pole dancer, I don't want that that image in my <laughs> No, I'm definitely not a pole dancer. <laughs> Uh, but that it, basically it's that like that image of the ladders being shattered. You have a jungle gym now in place. And sometimes we choose to leave the jungle gym and come back. And this can apply to career paths. It can apply to mentorship, pretty much anything you want to. But that's the difference that native digitals are bringing, that Gen Z is bringing, is that we are no, we don't see, we, we don't have the same definition of respect. You know, an older generation might say that the definition of respect is that everyone younger than them should respect, you know, respect their elders. They would say that it's a a one-way reciprocation, that the younger generation should have to look up to and always take the advice or the wisdom of an older generation. And of course, I'm not saying that we should not do that because I recognize we're standing on the shoulders of giants. We have so much to learn from from you. I mean, I have I have so much to learn from you, Christopher, and, and you've already taught me so much, even though we've only had a few conversations. But that that is being that and vice versa, Hannah. Sorry to interrupt you. Vice versa. Oh, thank you. No, really. That's what's so cool. Yeah. You no, and I have done right a now. little bit of this today and uh, you know, a little bit in the past, which is very cool. I love what I learned from you. Yes. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but but we are actually doing what we're talking about. Exactly. And, and it's conversations like this that are going to change the dynamics of how generations engage at work or even at home. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who say they don't enjoy being around their grandparents because all they hear from their grandparents all the time is what they're doing wrong and what they should learn and what their experiences were in the past and blah, 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 blah. And Gen Z is saying, no, grandpa or grandma, like I have equally as much to teach you. I have a friend right now who's trying to teach their grandmother stock investing because their grandmother is on the end of her retirement. You know, she she needs to be making some income. So he's trying to teach her about dividend bearing stocks. You know, there's so many things that that an older generation may not know how to use or may not know how to relate to. And that's the power of reverse mentorship and thinking about life, it, it, not as a ladder, but as a jungle gym where we all play different roles and we all play around different places and we can all teach each other something. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Now, before I let you go, and this may seem like a little bit out of left field, and if for whatever reason you don't want to talk about it, feel free to kick me under the table. Um, but uh, I've been having an ongoing discussion with many of my friends 
uh, Eddie and I have been sort of quietly in the background, sort of working on uh, a letter or an ebook about this topic, which is sort of um, what is wrong with men? And in, the reason I bring it up with you is when we look at the data about um, Gen Z men and, and millennial men, but it seems to be escalating with the newer generation, we see a whole lot of things. We see them falling back in school earlier and earlier. We see less of them going to college, which may be not a bad thing, but as we talked about, but we see many articles and research written about how um, women of your age have a very hard time finding men that they are interested and attracted to because less and less young men uh, seem to exhibit ambition, career drive, things along these lines. And, and, and we look at, you know, the rates of game playing. We look at the rates of suicide. We look at the mental health. We look at the fact that the average man doesn't make a new friend past about 23 years old. So the sort of the older a guy gets, typically the more lonely he gets. And so, and I could go through a shit ton of data that how overweight they are. There's a, just a, a, a massive amount of data that suggests that roughly a third of sort of um, native digital men are sort of opting out. They're not working. They're, they're just kind of opting out. And so I'm curious about if you have anything, any insight or anything um, that you have to say or, or want to say about sort of um, what, what the F is going on with uh, Gen Z men. Mm. You know, I, I can only speak from my point of view. I haven't done enough research to really know, you know, what what the impacts are. And honestly, I think we're going to continue seeing more, more and more studies and data come to light about the impact of things like you mentioned of of gaming and, and kind of getting out of of the spectrum um, for men and, and what that will end up doing with their long-term careers or or whatnot. So just this is just me, Hannah, speaking from my personal experience and not from data. I have a huge heart for the men I see in my lives, uh, in my life and in the lives of you know my friends and the people around me. I think that this challenge, and you're going to hear some of my heart with this just for humanity in general, but I don't think the challenge is what may be an, the assumption on the surface. And I think a lot of these studies that talk about Gen Z men opting out are going to point to the things that may seem obvious, you know, things like gaming or use of social media or whatever it is, or that they're not maturing fast enough, you know, quote unquote. But to me, all of this comes back, just like our conversation earlier about the critical thinking, all of this comes back to what we as a society have done to either empower men or to not empower men. And the same thing happened for women. I'll actually be the first woman to say that I think as a society, we've shifted so far toward a, toward a uh, perspective of feminism and female empowerment that we're leaving our men behind. And I know many people would hate me for saying this, but I see the men in my generation, the men in our society being a huge stronghold, the unique characteristics 
that they bring, the unique way that the male brain is structured and the unique chemicals that that men have in their brains that I don't know of, you know, I can't experience as a woman. I think those those things that we've as females, as women have blown up and made you know, we've, we've kind of taken society and, and made it ours and, and given us power. I think in doing so, we've left a lot of our men behind. And that's showing up in my generation, because especially millennials and, and your generation and, and the Gen Xers, the women in those generations have really brought so much empowerment to the surface, revolting from what came out of, you know, the 20th century, where we were so oppressed that we've switched the pendulum so far. We've we've swung it so far to our side that men are left feeling like they have no voice. And I see this from my husband, who is a, a white male, a white Gen Z male, who feels like he can't say anything without being bashed for his you know, for for being a white male who doesn't have any perspective because all he's had is privilege in his life, when that's really not the case for many of the men I know. So this could be a whole, you know, whole separate conversation about what do we do as a society to empower all genders to feel equally respected, to feel like we can all come to the table with a voice and have great disagreement. But from my perspective, again, just me personally, as someone who has a passion for humanity, is I see the societal and cultural underlining that we've built as females and the female empowerment drastically negatively affecting our men, where we almost shove them into a corner in in many ways, I don't see the problem that's causing men to not pursue careers or at least whatever careers these studies are defining as worthwhile careers. I don't know how they were defining that. But I see those things as as being only the bare surface level. And there's so many other challenges and problems we have to reconcile as a society to be able to bring those men back to full power and to, for them to be able to take charge and to understand the equal responsibility that they play in, in producing successful families and companies and, and communities. And does that mean that, I mean, obviously you're married, so you feel like you found one that you like. <laughs> um <laughs> But is this a topic that uh, amongst your gal friends, um, you know, is there a sense at all amongst your friend group or do you think maybe even more broadly uh, with uh, Gen Z gals, women who are sort of looking around going, hmm, who the fuck are we going to marry here? We're having a hard time finding men that we find, to put it candidly, as suitable mate candidates. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It it gets harder and harder and harder the older my friends get trying to date on Bumble or, you know, Hinge, whatever they're using. I So this is another reason that I, I people may point guns at me and, and hate me for saying this, but that's this is who I am very authentically. I think that when I look at my friend group and see the lack of of quality men who have aspirations or have their shit together... I see it as, unfortunately, we are to a place in society where men are being raised by women only without strong fathers. And they're losing the things about men that are some of the that cause some of the most horrific disasters in history, like war and, and fighting and violence. Those are also the same characteristics that make them protective and courageous and, and give them the ability to be good husbands and good partners and, and help, 
you know, help us as women succeed in our own careers and paths. So when I talk to my friend group and they're looking for quality men, they're looking for respect, sets of values, but they're looking for people who have guts, you know, guys who have balls and who are willing to make hard decisions. And we as women are not good at raising necessarily young boys as if we are doing it alone. We're not good at raising boys to see that because we don't have the same perspective as women. Our brain is wired differently. So if we teach our boys to be, you know, humble and and we teach them to be kind and generous and all the things that women, at least many women, are very naturally capable of giving. If we if we teach them those characteristics, they still need a male influence in their life who can teach them to be courageous and bold and take steps that that they that they may have may have not taken with just female influence in their lives. And I see that with my brother. Again, you know, he's he's one boy out of seven children, all of us girls. And I my my goal for him like in the next few years is I'm just thinking, man, you got to find some, you know, some men in your life who can teach you those skills that you're not going to get from being around women all the time. So to me, the root of the problem starts with the way that we're raising our men, raising our boys. And then once they get to that point where they're having to make these decisions, like about careers or whatever, by that point, they're willing to take risks. They're willing to take mistakes or to make mistakes. And, and that will help them build more courage and more fight for those careers and not just lean on the women who are telling them that they're weak and they don't have a voice. Yes. And I I don't have the data in front of me, but the data suggests that the percentage of boys being raised without a father figure around a lot is higher now than ever before. It may be more than 50%, but don't quote me on that. It's a high, high. It was a staggering number when I saw it. And the other interesting thing is, and again, I don't have the exact data in front of me, but if you go back a generation or two, uh, you had a school environment where there was a large percentage of teachers who were male. Um, and if you sort of had roughly half and half, and again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, and even if it was 60, 40, you know, there were still a lot of men around uh, as teachers. And today, and again, I don't have the data in front of me, but I, I believe in America it might be as high as 80 to 90% of teachers now and administrators are female. And so there is this, the data is pointing in a direction that says uh, boys are being raised by women at home, by mothers, and not having a ton of male interaction like they might have once. And they go into a school environment where um, it is primarily a female environment. So the data, as I understand it, without having the specifics in front of me, echoes exactly uh, what I hear you saying. Yes. And, and that's why when I see men who are willing to make mistakes and who are willing to be courageous, they're almost, they're one, they're one in a hundred. You know, when I see my friends who are still single and, and they're trying to date and, and they get through slews of, of guys, you know, whether they're swiping left or right, but they're getting through these slews of guys who, who are not worth their salt. I, I have to ask that question in my head all the time is how, how was their childhood? Because that's what it all comes back to. I know that's that's the way I was raised is the reason I am the person I am today. The way my my brother is raised is the reason he's the person he is today. And so much of society hinges on those first 
15 years of our life. You know, there's so many studies about that, about our childhood influences, our teenage influences. So for men, that's a huge, it's a point of passion for me. And like you said, even if we don't have all the data here, I want to be a woman who says, you know, stop, guys, stop letting yourselves get run over by us women. Like, let's both bring something to the table. Let's recognize we both have something of value to add. And let's do that 100% on both sides wholeheartedly as the unique individual people we are created to be. Hannah, you're awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? I would love to say that whenever I work with people like you, Christopher, it gives me hope for just my generation in general. Because like I said earlier, if we're standing on the shoulders of giants, we have so much to learn from people like you. And so I'm so grateful that you would engage in this conversation with me and not, you know, just at me. It's not just a matter of teaching, but it's us having this dialogue of what we can learn from each other. So I'm so grateful for this. And I I guess what I can I what I live my life to do is to bring radical empathy between people and between generations. So the, this new category of human being that we are, I, I kind of see myself as the bridge between those generations, between my parents, the millennial generation, and then this new alien generation that's coming. So every time I have coffee with a leader, one of the things I, I, I leave them with is I just want to say on behalf of my generation, thanks for putting up with our shenanigans because there's so many of them. We don't understand life yet. You know, we're still young and learning and that can be a competitive advantage, but it can also be a weakness. So I just want to thank you and other people who are extending that rope, but also willing to learn because this is the type of conversation that's going to make the future of work, the future of family everything. It's going to change everything if we can engage in these dialogues that may be uncomfortable sometimes. Well, I appreciate you for taking me to Gen Z native digital school very much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do it again. And I appreciate your new book and I appreciate your work. And Hannah, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, Christopher. Stay legendary, my friend. Well, there she is, Hannah Grady-Williams, and I sure hope you enjoyed this dialogue. And uh, I would encourage you to, uh, if you have some native analogs that you love, who you want to help educate on the massive change that is starting uh, right now, I would encourage you to share this episode with them right now. And don't forget, Hannah's book is out. It's called A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z. All right, we would like to thank... Our good friends at Malibu Milk, the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Did you know that almond milk is about 98% water and it damages the environment? A glass of almond milk contains only three to four almonds and it takes 15 gallons of water to produce just 16 almonds. And as you know, we have a water crisis. Flax is different. It's an eco-friendly superfood. And Malibu Milk is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. Give it a try. It's the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference at MalibuMilkWithAY.com. That's MalibuMilkWithAY.com. And on checkout, type in uh, Different15 for a 15% discount. 
Don't forget our friends at Warrior Angels Rescue. Check out warriorangelrescue.org. That's warriorangelrescue.org. Helping to rescue our Afghani sisters and brothers from one of the most difficult, disgusting, and terrifying places in the world right now. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this podcast is clearly produced in a studio that does contain nuts and... Um, the creators and producers of this podcast were absolutely consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time. His name is Jason DeFilippo. And I would encourage you to go to Substack and uh, search for The Pivoteer. Jason's got an awesome new newsletter out about how you can pivot in your career to a whole new you and a whole new career. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com are produced by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by the handsome and talented uh, GM Simon. Don't forget to listen to Katie Lang, teach kids entrepreneurship, Read Category Pirates on Amazon.com. Go to Amazon, type Category Pirates, and you'll see we're converting many of our mini ebook newsletters into ebooks on Amazon.com. Don't forget to spread podcasts, not viruses. A big thank you and a heartfelt, um, we appreciate you. We're grateful for you, for you to all of our health care heroes. You know, Lockhead, if you're going to have a podcast, you should learn how to talk. We love you, healthcare heroes. Uh, speaking of people we love, Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Omelonic, editor of Stink, uh, I mean, Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scott. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Please stay healthy, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>